Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May 11, 2017. This is episode 2002 of the Survival Podcast. And it's a Thursday. That means it's time for a listener call show. Uh, today I've got quite a few calls lined up for you. I've got training dogs not to eat your poultry. I've got a couple different thoughts on that. Getting rid of and treating poison ivy. Uh, how to get started with and learn more about cryptocurrencies. And dealing with stinky dogs and their fleas. Quite a few dog questions today. How one listener celebrated the communist high holiday of May Day, exactly the way I suggested by doing something entrepreneurial. We have learning to fix a tire because you needed to. And a young listener does a really great school science project. Uh, got a bunch of stuff for you today. All that and more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a favorite knife, a special knife, one you may hand down to a son or a daughter? How cool would it be if you had such a knife that you actually made yourself? With KnifeKits.com as your partner, you can do it. Check out the hundreds of options they have along with all the help you would need from books and DVDs to develop the skill of knife making. You can learn more at KnifeKits.com. Hey guys, as many of you know, I used to be a business and marketing consultant in my former life. And the advice I gave most business owners every day was, do what you say and say what you do. Well, ready-made resources figured that out on their own. All the resources from food storage to gardening to guns to alternative energy, ready-made and ready to go for your prepping needs. Check out ReadyMadeResources.com to learn more today. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 2002 because the episode is 2002. I have the War on Terror now includes Iraq, and I have the Beltway Sniper terrorizes the nation from a Chevy Caprice, contributed by Alex Shrugged. Um, before I read one of those, let's go ahead and take a look at the notable stuff, notable deaths this year. Um, Ted Williams, age 63, cardiac arrest, Major League Baseball player. That's an understatement, probably the Major League Baseball player. Bullet Bob Haynes, age 59, died of kidney failure while battling cancer, fastest man in the world and Dallas Cowboys wide receiver. John Gotti, age 61, died of throat cancer, Italian-American gangster. His daughter will star on the TV reality show Growing Up Gotti two years later. And Linda Lovelace, age 53, injuries from a car crash. She was a pornography queen turned Christian. She said her films were coerced and a public rape. That doesn't seem to check out. I did a little investigation on this. I didn't know who this chick was. She was the one from Deep Throat, which was like the mainstream porn movie of the 70s. And the only reason I even know about that is from a... Documentaries called the 70s. I like those documentaries that, that encapsulate a decade. Anyway, this year in film, The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers comes out. Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Um, Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones. Star Trek Nemesis. I actually like that one. And the horror trio, Minority Report, Resident Evil, and Sweet Home Alabama. This year in TV, we have... On the record with Greta Van Susteren, she switches to Fox News after CNN, re refuses to authorize her cosmetic surgery. Okay. Uh, the Bachelor, proof that the apocalypse is near, says Alex Shrugged. Yeah, that, oh, the Bachelor, the Bachelor. I mean, people that watch, I just don't understand you. I'm not going to put you down, I just don't get you. American Idol, contestants sink their hearts out, the TV audience phones in votes. And uh, HBO's The Wire debuts this year. This year in music. 
Michael Jackson dangles his nine-month-old son over a balcony in his hotel room. Fallen in and out of love with you from Alicia Keys. And courtesy of the red, white, and blue from Toby Keith. You'll be sorry that you messed with the U.S. of A. Because we'll put a boot in your ass. It's the American way. Big favorite with the troops. Alex shrugged. Loved it. Uh, this year in video games. Madden NFL 2003. Grand Theft Auto Vice City. Kingdom Hearts. Final Fantasy XI Online. In other news, reporter Daniel Pearl is beheaded by Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. It takes some time. Very disturbing if you've ever actually seen it. Don't watch it if you haven't. You don't need to at this point. An Egyptian national shoots up the L.A. International Airport on July 4th for some reason. He unleashes on the E.L.L. -E ticket counter, killing two Israeli security shoots him dead. The FBI's puddles is his motives. I'm not kidding. Yeah, it's not hard to figure out. Sarbanes-Oxley has passed to prevent another Enron or WorldCom, given the financial collapse of the U.S. later on. This law didn't help at all. No child left behind is now the law. Now it will be the teachers behind as they teach to the test. And the Child Online Protection App, or COPA, is ruled unconstitutional. Frankly, it was so broadly defined that Christina Aguilera's music videos would put her in prison immediately. I don't know if I have a problem with that or not. I all for free speech, but I'm not a big fan. Anyway... I'm going to read The Beltway Sniper Terrorizes a Nation from His Chevy Caprice. A bullet crashes through a storefront window, missing the cashier. No one is hurt. But an hour later, a 55-year-old government employee is shot dead in the parking lot of a grocery store. The next morning, a man is shot dead while mowing his lawn. Then a taxi driver filling up with gas. Another guy visiting the post office. A woman vacuuming out her car and many more that day. Some wounded, mostly dead. A few days later, a 13-year-old boy is shot as his mother drops him off at school. It looks bad, but he lives. The victims are random. Anyone from Richmond, Virginia to Baltimore, Maryland might be next. Fear grips the nation. The Congress has authorized the use of force in Iraq. Is this an al-Qaeda operative or an Iraqi foreign agent trying to disrupt the coming war? A white van is spotted, so white vans are stopped left and right. The police are also looking for a dark-colored Chevy Caprice. The police pull over a man named John Allen Muhammad, but he doesn't act guilty. So they let him go. More people die. Then a call comes in. A truck driver thinks the two guys at the rest stop are the snipers. He will use his white van to block their escape and waits for the police. Two men are found sleeping in a Chevy Caprice in the back seat is a Bushmaster XM-15 and enough ammo to start a war. John Allen Muhammad is a convert to the Nation of Islam and a Gulf War veteran. With him is 17-year-old John Lee Malvo, a Jamaican citizen. The Bellway sniper and his spotter have been caught. My take by Alex Shrugged. Okay, what was their motive? The media seems to think they were crazy, and there is some supporting evidence for that. But it wasn't enough to save them from life in prison, for Malvo and the death penalty for Muhammad. Malvo seemed like a kid being bullied into following along, but years later he spoke of himself at the time being a monster. John Allen Muhammad was a mixed bag. He was certainly angry over his divorce and the loss of the custody of his kids. Nevertheless, his motives, based on his own statements, lead me to believe that he was first defending the nation of Islam then getting revenge for slavery, and supporting Osama bin Laden. He also said America got what it deserved on 9-11. So was he an, an Islamic terrorist? Close enough for me. I'd say so. I would say he was definitely a terrorist. I lived in the Northeast at this time. I was working for a company called Fluke Networks, and I was the Northeast Regional Sales Manager for the, for the whole corporation. And um, I traveled from Virginia to Maine. That was my territory, and out to the Ohio border of Pennsylvania, so that kind of gives you an idea of where I was at. So definitely D.C., Maryland, Baltimore, all of that was in my wheelhouse at the time. And I'll tell you this, if something had gone on in that part of my territory that I needed to go do, 
I would have gone. I would not have stayed away. Let's say that one of my reps had a, a, a big deal they needed help closing or there had been a trade show or something like that. But in general, unless something big was going on, I, I managed my own schedule. And I decided which of my five territories that I went into. And D.C. immediately went to the bottom of the list until this was over. So, again, I didn't neglect it. I just, if something was necessary, I'd go down there. But my thought was, why, why go into the middle of this when I don't have to? When I've got plenty to do in Philadelphia, New York, Boston, Pittsburgh, uh, Providence, you know, Portland, Maine. Um, West Virginia, Charlotte, uh, you know, places like I had so many places to go. It just made me change that. And I'm not one for overreacting. So if it made me change that, I can only imagine what it was like for people that were living in the area thinking it could be anyone. The fact that it was random is what actually made it terrorism. There's a lesson in there in understanding how terrorists think. They, they do want to create maximum fear with minimal effort and randomizing things and making people think children and the, the weakest among us are potential victims is one way to do that. I remember while this was going on, we were sitting in our living room. We had this huge picture window that looked over our front yard and out to our neighbors. Really beautiful view. And I remember my, my wife saying, you know, thinking about this, I'm actually concerned about sitting in front of my window. That's how ridiculous this is. And I'm like, no, that's exactly what they're looking for. Now, where we lived, I don't think we had anything to worry about, but... You know, it, it does show you how stuff like that gets inside your head. Because any given day, when this was at its height, you were more likely to die in a car wreck in D.C. than you were to get shot by the D.C. sniper. But it was still the fact that it could happen that played on your mind. And there's a lesson there. One is to take proper precautions. Don't take needless risks. But the other is to not live in fear and still love our life emboldened and go out and do what needs to be done. Just my thoughts on that. All right, folks, I want to remind you one more time about the Members Support Brigade. That's the way you can help support this show by becoming a member of our MSB. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. But I want to give you six of the more than 60 discounts we get today. All of these pertain to growing your own food. Marsh Creek Farmstead can give you discounts on the Irapan and Comfrey Cuttings. Bob Wells Nursery gives you 10% off all of their offerings, bushes, trees, shrubs, and vines that grow food in your own backyard. And then we have four great seed companies that all do really great discounts for you. NE Seeds, Terroir Seeds, The Victory Seed Company, and High Mowing Seeds. If you take advantage of those with your homesteading activities throughout the year, those alone will probably pay for your membership. And hey, you know what? There's still over 60 more companies offering discounts on things you're probably buying anyway. So get by the survivalpodcast.com today. Click on members to learn more and sign up. And if you've let your membership last lapse, remember now would be a great time to come on back to the Survival Podcast MSB. All right, with that, I uh, want to uh, get into the main topic of today's show. I've got a, a quick little announcement first that I think you guys might be interested in. Um, on the 15th, which I think is a Wednesday, I'm not sure. Let me look at the calendar real quick. Maybe it's Tuesday. The 15th is Monday. So Monday, a place called Cackle Hatchery will be shipping a shipment to yours truly. I am not getting more ducks this year. I've brooded enough ducks this year. I am tired of brooding ducks. Um, and if I was getting more ducks, I would go back to Metzger Farms. Uh, what I have coming to me are 15 turkeys. So I'm going to do the thing I did last year again. So if you're inter if you're local to the area and you're interested in reserving a turkey, you can email me about that. I pasture-raise my turkeys. They'll be ready a few weeks, probably before Thanksgiving. Uh, these birds will, will range when dressed out. Uh, their dressed weight will be somewhere in the neighborhood of 24 to 44 pounds. No, I'm not kidding. 
I'm, I'm not kidding. Um, that worked out really well last year. I'm going to charge a little more this year because they are a high-input animal. I'm going to charge $4 a pound on the dressed weight. Um, the people that bought them were blown away. There was, like, you just can't buy a turkey like this. And, I mean, you're getting, like, four Thanksgivings out of a big one. Uh, my buddy David, I sold him the last one I had, the littlest one, was 24 pounds, and he couldn't fit it in the oven. I mean, that's how big they are. But I've got those, those, I've got 15 coming, and hopefully we'll end up with more turkeys by the end of the rotation this year. I'm going to clip their wings as soon as they have full feathers. So we won't have any, uh, any going over the fence, uh, in that interim phase when they're, you know, big enough to fly, but still wide enough to be able to get over fences. So, um, that's one thing. But I think the cooler thing that I'm going to try in, in, in coming with my turkey poults, you call a baby turkey, not a chick, you call them a poult, uh, will be four chickens. I know I got rid of all my chickens. These are special chickens. They're bantam chickens. Um, they are um, two different, uh, I guess it's really one breed, but two different uh, color patterns. One is a golden-laced uh, Cochrane bantam, and the other is just a red bantam. I think that's what I got is a red bantam, but I know I got the golden-laced bantams because they look really pretty. Uh, bantam Cochrans are known to be very broody birds, And, of course, bantams are small chickens. These are little bitty chickens. They'll lay an egg about twice the size of a, a quail egg. And as you might have guessed, they are going into my aviary to live with my quail. I'll have to make them a little roost thing in there because I don't want them incentivized to get up on the, the plants or anything up on the, on the main beds. Uh, so I'll make them a little roost so I can move around so that they move their poo around. Uh, I think they'll do a better job of composting things for me than the quail. Uh, but the main reason that we're bringing these guys in is I'm hoping that one, you know, one or a couple of them go broody. I can just pop some quail eggs underneath them and have my bantam chickens raise my meat quail for me. I don't know of anybody that's ever done this before. It may have been done, but I am not aware of it. I've checked some forums and stuff. A lot of people seem to have had the idea. I haven't seen anybody actually really try to execute it yet. Um, they are good mothers when they go broody, and they don't all go broody. But if you're with four, one of them may or may not. If it works, great. If it doesn't work, I got four little chickens to put on the grill. I mean, that's that's what it's going to come down to. Uh, bantams are also bantam cochrans anyway, especially females are also kind of one of those pet-like chickens, uh, the kind of chicken that likes to sit in your lap and stuff. So it'll be nice when people bring kids and stuff over to have a bird that's you know we'll we'll do a little extra effort to tame them. If you've ever heard of anybody successfully hatching and raising quail with bantam chickens, please let me know about it. If not, I'll give it a shot, and we'll see how it works together. With that, let's go ahead and take your first call. Remember, to be on a show like this, give me a call. 866-65-THINK is the phone number. 866-65-THINK. Ask your question or make your point immediately at the beginning of the call, and then give me your details. It'll go better that way. First up, we have today a question about... Training dogs not to eat your poultry. Let's go ahead and take that call now. Hi, I have a question for Jack regarding uh, training dogs um, around livestock. Uh, background, my uh, <clears throat> I have a German short-haired pointer, uh, very much a bird dog, and we recently got some chickens and uh, guinea fowl. And I know in past uh, episodes you've kind of briefly touched on uh, training your dogs to be around lives or around birds and how they don't attack them. Uh, just curious if you could give a little more detail into how you train them and 
what techniques and what you did to uh, get them not to eat birds. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Hope to hear us on the air. Bye. Okay. Um, the number one training aid that you can use for training your dogs and dealing with livestock and not having them attack and kill your, your livestock, and it's a good training aid for many other things, is something a lot of people will have a hard time with. However, um, I would point out that people are using the same technology to keep chickens where they want them, and they just don't think of it the same way. It's an electric shock collar. So I want you to think about this. You take your chickens, and you put up a electro net, and um, the chicken goes over to the electro net and says, screw this, I want to go over there, touches the electro net and gets shocked, and says, hell, I don't like that, it sucks, and maybe does it one or two more times and says, that stuff's bad, I don't want to touch it anymore. Okay, And only when the chicken commits a behavior that you'd prefer the chicken not to commit does the chicken receive a shock. This is how you have to use uh, electric shock collars. And there's different ways to do it, and we've kind of come to the conclusion within the inner circle here that there's what's called the Spearco way and the Ferguson way. And, and the truth is they're really not either. It's just we both talked about using it differently. And recently I used the Ferguson way, and I'm going to cover both because they both have different purposes And they both have a lot to do with the age of the dog that you're working with, if the Spearco way, let's say, will be as effective as, as, as otherwise. So the basic Spearco way is we, we teach the dog basic commands, stay, sit, come. And I, I can't emphasize how much to train a dog. If you want to train a dog not to act on its instinct to attack a bird, teaching it to sit on its butt when it's told, lay down, play dead, uh, sit still, shake hands, basic commands... That's almost, almost has to come first because it should be done concurrently. But if you can't get basic obedience training done, then, then, then getting this intervention with the dog's willingness to go out and eat a bird, especially a bird dog, then you're, you're just not going to get there. So when I got Charlie, he was a pup. He was 12 weeks old. This gave me a great opportunity. And I started out without using electric shock uh, training aids at all to see if I could do it. And the basic premise with a pup is before the pup's old enough to really pose a threat to the animals, you associate the pup with the animals constantly. And if you get the animal young enough and you're more in the eight to nine weeks range where it's really easy to do, they just won't. They just won't because, like, that's just something that's here when I'm here. I was able to do it with the cats as kittens as well and a little bit of reinforcement from a garden hose. They get a little too aggressive, they get sprayed with the hose with a nozzle that immediately shuts off. So as soon as they turn around, you're standing there like, I don't, you're looking at the clouds, I didn't have any, don't know what happened, cat, sorry. So they associate the behavior with the action. With a pup, if you want to use the animal on the, the property, like I use Charlie, and, and for instance, say, the geese are all up on the porch, taking a dump on the porch, or they've gone into the garage, and I want them out of there, and I want to be able to send him in to actually move them, then I need to have him trained to obedience, So this is what came to be called the Spearco method of electrical uh, shock training, right? So what we do is we work with the dog, and we put the collar on the dog's neck. And the dog in this method knows that the collar does what the collar does. The dog becomes collar-wise is a word for it. And it can bite you in the back if you don't do it right. Because that means the dog will listen when the collar's on and not listen when the collar's off. And what you do is when the dog goes after the bird aggressively, you give him a shock and say, No! That's it. And if it doesn't work, 
The, the, the reason I like the one I use called the Dog Tra Training Collar, I have a link in the show notes to my review of it, you go to a higher level and zap no. Sooner or later you will find what, what, what I think is important, the minimal level of correction necessary to make it uncomfortable for the dog. The reason I like the Dog Tra is because it has such a wide range of power settings. For instance, when I first tried it, it goes up like 150 or something like that. I tried it with 25 for Charlie. He went after the birds. I said no. I pushed it, held it down. It did nothing. I ran and grabbed him and smacked him on the butt and said no. I then turned it up to 32, and he went after the birds, and I did it. And he shook his head, and I said no. But I could tell it didn't really hurt. We found out his number was 42. That was the next number we tried. We waited. We did not bait him into it. We didn't set him up for failure. We went walking around. We watched him. We waited till he started sneaking off to the side. He gets toward the birds. And zap no. Yelp! Okay? Okay, shit, that hurts. And now I know this collar thing does that when I go over there, and my masters told me not to do it. The beautiful thing about this, now we have a training aid, and we probably, probably... Uh, due to Charlie's propensity to attack weed eaters and chainsaws, he did get a couple more shocks in his career, in his training, but that was the last time he was ever shocked over an animal because he was a smart dog and he had the right aptitude for it. And all that there's also a setting on this pager. And once I know I don't have to shock a dog, I set it to zero so I don't make a mistake and shock my buddy when I don't need to, and I put it on pager. And when he's doing something you don't want him to do, no, no, bzz, 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 you get him to vibrate. And they'll, you'll see them like kind of shake back and look. And you can use, the, the beauty of this is, come here. Not because they're doing anything wrong, because they're outside and you want them to come in the house. Come here. No? Okay. Buzz. And it gets them in the condition of, when, when, when the master says to do something, I am to do it. You are the pack leader. And I don't, I think we put too much anamorphism on animals and we try to think like, well, you know, be nice and whatever. And once you have a dog well trained, you can be nice. I, I can just look at Charlie and say, can you can please come here and sit down? And he'll do it, right? But we don't, we don't do that in the training stages. That's almost showing off is what that is. So when you say something, you mean it. And in, in a, like a, a wolf pack, the pack leader decides when you eat, when you sleep, when you hunt, everything. They're a dictator. And dogs need that type of structure to behave correctly. So now you use that for all other training purposes, and we get them desensitized. The first thing is we want them desensitized. We want them where the bird runs right past and they don't even look at it. Then if you want to go to another level, which is too, too involved to go into today, you can start working on training them to move, training them they can go after them when you want them to, but they can't attack, you know, um, that there are times you might actually, I've had times where I've had to catch a bird and I've had Charlie pin it and he'll mouth it, but he won't bite it so I can get my hands on it. Now that's advanced stuff and I don't know that you want to do that. But that's a Spirico method. The basic methodology is we're training the dog to obey the commands and they know that the pain is associated with the behavior but they also know it comes from this device that they're not going to wear all the time. Charlie hasn't worn his collar in two years. And he only wears it once in a while for reinforcement training. That's about the only time uh, that, that, that we have him do that. So um, just kind of keep that in mind. Now here's the Ferguson method. The Ferguson method is you want the problem solved and you want the dog to basically never touch your animals ever and you're not really going to use him as a herding animal or something like that and you don't really care that he knows you or in fact you don't even care that the dog knows anything. 
So the method that we use now is we put the training collar on the dog. And we do this three or four days in a row. We put it on, we take it off, we put it on, we take it off, we put it on, we take it off. We set it to a fairly high setting, one we know that's going to work. We're not going to work our way up the food chain with this at all. Then we let the dog outside, completely unsupervised, as far as the dog knows. We set up the opportunity for the dog to go after one of the birds. We hide and sneak and laugh, and we wait in our window, and we point at the dog, and we wait. And just as the dog is about to bite the bird, we let him have it. And when it yelps and flips over backward and goes to run away, you do it again. What does the dog think? That's a lightning bird. Lightning birds bite, and they hurt, and I don't want that. And then we just give them the opportunity to do it again. And we keep giving the dog the opportunity to do this, We're setting them up for failure, basically. Unsupervised, there's birds running around. And every time they go after it, zap. And eventually it becomes, those things suck. I don't want anything to do with those things. What's funny is they don't get afraid of them. They just, because when the one walks by them, it doesn't happen. It's only when they're aggressive and go after them. So they think, they have some kind of power over me. And they can shock me. When we got Lucy, she was already an adult dog. Young, but an adult. She also been living on the streets, and she'd been living by feeding herself through hunting. We could tell by the shape she was in. She was very skinny and very fast. And I walked her with a leash right past the birds, and I thought, wow, this is going to be easy. The first time she was off, she was on the back of a duck. She killed a duck. You have to shoot the dog if it kills her. Shut up. I hate people like that. You're an idiot. You don't know how to train dogs. Okay? She did kill one duck, and actually she didn't kill it. She hurt it bad enough that I had to put it down. Um, she T-boned one of the turkeys, but they were so big she really couldn't do anything to them. And the big turkey came after her. So she got the Ferguson treatment. I set her up to about 60, put the collar on her, and just continuously electrocuted her every single time she went after a bird. And since she stopped, she had one baby she attacked on me during this brooding season. And she got her butt beat for it. And then we went on with life. And I'm not a big one on beating dogs. I don't believe in beating dogs. When I say butt beat, I mean, basically, I grabbed her by the collar and gave her like four quick swats to the nose. Not hard enough to really hurt, but hard enough to know it was wrong and be upset about it. And uh, since then, no problems even with the young ducks. If when we go back into the next cycle of, of young birds next year, I see any aggressive signs, I will redo the Ferguson method. But again, what's critical with this is they can't know it's the collar. So you put the collar on them, and you take the collar off. I mean, it's on for four or five hours, you take it off. It's just a thing the owner does. And, you know, they lose association with the collar and the shock. So if I put that collar on Charlie now, he hasn't worn it for two years. He's like, oh, it's, it's work time, and I need to focus and pay attention. He's not really afraid of it, but he knows. And if he's, if he's, if, if I was doing some kind of reinforcement training and he was not paying attention and I give him a buzz, he's full on attention. If I put it on her, she has no clue at all that has anything to do with her other obedience training. They're two different tactics using the same technique. And you have to decide which one's right for you. I went a little long with that, but I thought it was important to know both of them. Because with a bird dog, especially if it's not a pup, you may want to go with the Ferguson method. Here's the thing. You can use the Ferguson method and then switch later to the Spirico method, um, but it's not quite as effective. If you pop the Spirico method out of the gate, really, really gives you a good command control with your dog. 
And I highly recommend shock collars. And again, for those of you that think that it's cruel, what's more cruel? Yelling and screaming at your dog for years and years when he doesn't understand what you're trying to say. You're saying, hey, stop that. You're not supposed to do that. And he said, blah, 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 blah. They don't know words. They just, you know, a, a dog may have a vocabulary up to 500 words by the time they're five years old, believe it or not. But when you're in that training stage, they don't understand. They understand individual words. They don't understand sentences and phrases. Uh, smacking the dog. Hitting the dog with a hat. Shooting the dog, because if a dog eats a chicken, you have to shoot him. Or having the dog receive an electrical stimulus several times to reinforce that the behavior is, in a, is, is not warranted. And the same people that say it's, it's, it's cruel have electric fences. That sooner or later their dog will touch and learn not to touch that fence anymore. Because Lucy touched the fence and it was way worse. When I zapped her, she's like, yelp, and that's it. When she had our electric fence, she screamed and she ran 200 yards to the other side of the property and then she came back to me cowering and shaking because she thought something bitter. So obviously electric fence hurt worse. So the reason I say this is because whenever I talk about this training method, I always get some hate mail. And I love my dogs and I treat them like family, which is why I want them trained in a way that they fit in on my, my property. They're not going out of my front fence. They're not getting run, run over. They're not biting someone that doesn't need to be bitten. And this is a damn good training technique. That's almost a mini show in itself, so I'm going to move on. I'll go quicker through some of the other calls today. But uh, I also have a show completely on training dogs. I'll see if I can find that for you and put it in the show notes as well. Hey, Jack. This is Trevor from Ohio. Hey, uh, I just got blindsided by a bad case of poison ivy. It's popping up all over my yard, and I'm wondering if you have any advice on how to deal with it. Um, if there's any strategic way or to, to plant something that can outcompete it. Um, and also, um, treating poison ivy, if uh, I keep hearing that there's nothing you can do um, to make it heal any faster, you can just take something to, to make the itching go away, but I didn't know if that's something that uh, Comfrey to the rescue can uh, can help with. So uh, let me know. Thanks. Bye. Okay, so two questions. Let's take it in two parts. Um, poison ivy is difficult to eradicate because it is very hardy, uh, but it does have certain weaknesses. And the biggest weakness it has is it's an edge species. And, and what that means is if you give it enough shade, it dies. And if you give it too much sun, it dies. If you if you think about the places that you find poison ivy, and it seems to be deep in the woods, it's always where? It's along a path. So when we have a path through the woods, we create an artificial glade. A glade is simply an opening in the forest. And you'll see that the places where that dappled sunlight gets in is where your poison ivy is most prevalent. That doesn't mean in some climates that it won't grow in areas that are full sun, but I think you'll even find those areas are full sun during the morning. Generally, a place that gets full sun through the afternoon, poison ivy will not grow. Deep in the dark forest, poison ivy doesn't grow. So one of the things we can do is either shade it out or open it up and, and beat it with sun, and, and both of those will help knock it back. Mechanical removal is the most sure way to do it. Of course, if you're highly susceptible to poison ivy, that can be a bad thing. Uh, you can wear basically a throwaway suit uh, and good gloves, and uh, as soon as you're done, throw the suit away, get rid of it, get rid of the gloves, wash yourself really well, and you may be okay. But this is involving getting the roots out, not so much just the top of the plant, because it will come back from the roots like crazy. It's, a, again, difficult plant to eradicate. As much as I hate, as much as I hate Monsanto... The reality is probably the most efficient way to get rid of poison ivy is 
One, with protective clothing and cut it way back. And then two, to spray it with something like Roundup. Or a three-part herbicide uh, using 2,4-D. None of these things are good things. I hate these things. But uh, you need a herbicide made up of 2,4-D, amine, decarba, and mega mercoprop. Um, I, I would just go ahead and use Roundup. I'm just giving you both of the options. Uh, in fact, they, they specifically make a high-strength Roundup, which is lots and lots of glyphosate in it, uh, for poison ivy and poison oak. You might wonder how someone who has such a disdain for GMOs and herbicides would recommend an herbicide. Well, my hatred of herbicide is not the thing itself. I am not like the liberal that hates guns because some people use guns to shoot people that shouldn't be shot. Um, I believe that herbicides have a place and they can be responsibly used. They just, in agriculture, are not. And general lawn care, etc., are not as well. Using a broad-spectrum weed killer, uh, completely eradicating things, never fully solves the problem. It always comes back. But you can knock poison ivy back with that Roundup with multiple applications of it. And then you want to plant something in there once that Roundup has done its thing and it's gone uh, to kind of get get the, the whole area taken over. And a good uh, thing to do might be to knock it back and actually just completely sheet mulch it with two or three layers of cardboard so that it can't come back that year. And then that late fall, you can dig it up and remove the roots because it's the oils and the leaves and stems that actually you're going to get you. Wearing gloves, using a grub hoe, kind of really work that area over, improve its fertility, and then plant English ivy. Because English ivy, or if you can find some wild jewelry weed, which unfortunately will probably be growing next to wild poison ivy, both of those are plants that, that grow in the same area that poison ivy does, and they can overgrow and choke it out. So those are your best bets for that. If you mechanically remove poison ivy, please do not burn it. Uh, burning poison ivy can be really detrimental to your health. And to certain people who are highly allergic to it, like my father, it can be life-threatening, the, the, the stuff that comes off it when it's burnt. Okay, now here's the other side, treatment. I only have so much knowledge of this because I am one of the fortunate people that can basically roll in poison ivy and not get it. I do not get poison ivy, I do not get poison oak. I have had very mild rashes from it, and the only way that happens is if I'm like really scratched up from, like as a kid, you know, I was always in the bush, and you get really scratched up from briars, And then, like, you're cocky because you don't think you get poison ivy. And I get some of the oil where the skin has actually been opened up. And in that, that area, I'll get a little bit. And it gives me some sympathy for those of you guys that get it. Um, having a family who had always fought it. Uh, things like Benadryl cream are great for dealing with the itchiness of it. Um, I do believe that if you speak to a doctor, there is a shot that can help relieve it. I'm not 100% sure on that. Maybe Doc Bones will chime in on that. I do believe there's actually a shot that reduces the sensitivity to it, but I'm not sure about that. Again, I've never really had to follow up on this because um, I have don't I don't get it. Um, if the area you are in has poison ivy, and if you look around and if you go Google jewel weed, jewel like the like jewelry, jewel weed. It's one of those things that nature did. They put the, the cure right next to the, the, the problem. And if you take jewel weed and, 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 and macerate it and rub it on the area you've been exposed, it won't only help relieve, but if you do it early on, it will help reduce the severity of the rash. That is not a wives' tale. It really does work. 
The best thing you can do, though, if you realize you've been exposed to poison ivy, is to wash extensively with soap and water as soon as possible and get as much of the oil as possible off your skin. Another good practice is to you know, find some good, comfortable, lightweight, long, long pants. Because I think it's where people get it mostly is on their legs, walking through woods and all. And when you're taking these trips in these hikes in areas where poison ivy is prevalent, if you're susceptible to it, wear those long pants. Um, tuck them in. If you wear boots, tuck them into your boots. Blouse them the way that we do uh, in the military. There's a lot of reasons for that, and this is one of them. Um, and then when you get home, we take those pants off, and they go right in the wash. We want to wash our hands, etc. If you can find good, comfortable um, long-sleeve shirts that are breathable, Uh, these are things, anything that reduces exposure to the skin, but get the clothing off as soon as you come back from what you were doing. Uh, those are some ways of prevention. And prevention, you know, an ounce of prevention is where the pound of cure is the old saying. And I, I believe it to definitely be the case with poison ivy. Learn to identify it and realize there are times of the year where it is far more likely to get you than others. Um, toward the end of the year where it looks really dull, it, it's not that capable of causing a lot of problems. This time of year when everything's in full growth mode and you look at it, it's all shiny, that shiny, shiny color is the oils in it, and that's what gets you. So really just keep an eye out for it. Learn to identify it. Uh, try to knock it back where you can. Don't be afraid to use a chemical herbicide if you need to. This is a spot application. We want to eradicate it, and we're not going to be constantly applying it. Uh, basic soil remediation over six months in that area, which is basically you know, good organic amendments, uh, uh, liquid or dry molasses, some rock minerals and things like that, some compost and mulch to rehabilitate that area after it's been uh, hit with glyphosate. Um, I, I have a real problem with land that's been hit with glyphosate year after year after year after year. Uh, one or two applications of it actually is quite biodegradable and does go away quite quickly. It's not as evil as we make it out sometimes. When we're spraying it directly on the food we're going to eat, that's a different story. With that, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Matt from Kansas. I uh, hope you can hear me. I uh, just dropped my phone in a bucket of water while doing chores. Anyway, uh I was going to see if you could uh, point some of us newbies on uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency uh, to a place where we could just, you know, dive in and get started as far as research and just learning about it. I've got a little bit of a little bit of money saved and would like to put some on it, but I want to learn what I'm doing first. Anyway, thanks for your time. Thanks. Okay, so, I mean, I wish I could tell you that I'm like a cryptocurrency expert or something like that. I'm not. I, I, I struggle with this myself. Um, Brandon Todd, who was just on, I, I imagine you heard that show based on the timing of your call, uh, did a really good job. And I think that the episode with him that we just had this, this last week, you know, the week ago, um, I think some of you probably feel like, well, it went over your head. And, and I know he got pretty technical on some of it. But I'll tell you this, if you if you listen to that one two or three times in a row, it'll start to go in. It'll start to make a lot more sense. And then the other sources of information will start to make more sense. Uh, he gave a, um, a resource in that episode. Uh, it's called the Let's Talk Bitcoin uh, podcast. And it's like a network. It's not a podcast. It's multiple podcasts. Some of them are directly straight up about cryptocurrencies. Some of them are more just simply liberty-oriented. There's a lot of anarcho-voluntarist, agorist theme throughout the different podcasts. 
I think if you go there and you start listening to the most recent episodes, you may get some value, but it may there's a huge long feed there, just like there is at my show. And to go way, way back and start listening to some of the first episodes of some of those podcasts may help you because what happens in any podcast, and I try to be aware of this with mine, is you get more and more advanced in the subject matter because you've been speaking to the same people for nine years and they've learned with you. Uh, so every once in a while I try to pull it back. But, you know, sometimes it helps to go back to early days to, to get up to speed, so to speak. And, and that's the best one that I've seen so far. He also has a website called CryptoSkim. Uh, CryptoSkim. And if you go to CryptoSkim, uh, you can read his weekly update on what's going on with cryptocurrencies. I'll also let you guys know that I have asked and Brandon has agreed to become a member of the council. I have actually quite a few new members of the expert council I'm going to be announcing very, very soon. Uh, but Brandon Todd will be one of them. So you're, you, you can start bringing your questions about cryptocurrency and various things of cryptocurrency to my attention. You know, TSPC expert in the subject line, send them in. And hopefully we'll become that resource to help people learn more about cryptocurrencies. I empathize with you because this is how I feel. I'll find out about a cryptocurrency, let's say Monero, and I'll go to their website. And it doesn't seem that any of them do a really good job of explaining what it is they do. They have all these, like, it's open source, so they show you all their code and shit. Well, if you don't write code, I don't know what it means. Um, you know, maybe get a line or two on it. But I, I think what you really need to understand about cryptocurrency at this point is if you're investing in a cryptocurrency, I, I look at it as two ways. A solid investment that you're actually fully informed about, that you're willing to take a risk on some money. And the same thing, but purely speculative in a smaller amount because you're really not sure. But hey, it's 50 bucks or 100 bucks. And when you're in the, the second kind, I think it's just kind of instinctual. And maybe you hear some things on some podcasts or do some research and whatever. When you're talking about putting real money in, and I consider real money a few hundred dollars to a few thousand dollars. Um, uh, my question is, what does this do that other cryptocurrencies don't already do, and how does it do it better? And, and I can't tell you how to find that out, but I'm telling you that's what to look for with any given currency. So if we look at Dash, it's really fast. It's completely anonymous. If we look at Ethereum, it provides a backbone for other technologies, other companies, other tokens, other systems, far more so than Bitcoin ever could. Ethereum is the promise of the Bitcoin blockchain fulfilled. So, like, those are two that I'm comfortable putting some money in. I, I personally feel I'm going to save my comments on this for Monday because I have a question directly to it, but that Bitcoin is going to become the gold of cryptocurrency. It's not going to matter that it's a little bit slower to spend and what have you. It's going to be the store of value that people just keep lots of money in because nobody wants to spend it anyway. And when you want to spend some of it, you'll you'll turn it into Dash or Monero or Ethereum or, or what have you, uh, or Swarm City tokens or what have you. Um, but the, I mean, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network. So, and I've, I'm looking at some other podcasts, and you know, they're either not very good or they're part of that network. Again, it's called Let'sTalkBitcoin.com, and it's like five or six different podcasts uh, that are in there, and uh, some pretty good stuff. And again, you're going to get a lot of anarcho-libertarian stuff mixed in with it. Just know that. And this last week, because the stupid book came out, villainizing uh, Ross Albright, 
who was the guy behind Silk Road. Uh, you're going to get like this barrage of people interviewing Lynn Albright, his, his mother, um, you know, like a big movement thing. And I feel terrible for Ross. Um, I, I don't know that he's as innocent as some of the people in the Liberty Movement make it out to be. I do know he doesn't deserve two lifetime sentences back to back. And those of you that have heard things like, oh, but he, he enabled murder, he committed murder, He's just, he wasn't charged with any violent crime whatsoever. He wasn't charged with any. He wasn't even officially accused of any. Um, he built a website. That's what he did. He built a website. Um, but there's just a lot of that this week. So again, I'd go back to earlier episodes. Uh, that's the best I can do for you right now. Anybody that has any good resources for like the beginner entry level stuff, that you know, you say it is, and I see a bunch of code. That's not it. That's not what I mean. Uh, that actually breaks down the interval currencies and says why they are as good as they are, what what they do, how they do it, what their track record is, who's behind it, stuff like that. I'd love to see it. Um, with that, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Jason from Oklahoma. Hey, um, how do you uh, control fleas and ticks on your dogs? Uh, I have a inside. I have a Inside, outside dog spends most of his time inside, and uh, we've got two cats that spend about half the time inside and half the time outside. Uh, apart from uh, the normal uh, flea and tick powder and uh, flea collars and stuff, uh, what do you do? And how do you control a stinking dog? Uh, he smells absolutely horrible even after you give him a bath. Anyways. Looking forward to your response. Okay, so again, we have somebody smart enough to sneak in two questions. Um, let's start out with the fleas. This is highly related to where you live. When I was a kid and I lived in Jacksonville, Florida, you could walk around the house in a pair of white socks and literally pick fleas off your, your socks. In fact, we used to do we used to do a little uh, like a, a jar full of soapy water and and do that to to reduce the population. You could see them on the white socks and pick them off and throw them in the jar. This isn't because our house was uh, not well kept or anything. It was just how many fleas lived in the area. Uh, humid, sandy, flea central, and we had dogs and cats. We had outdoor cats that came in the house, so all of that leads to more fleas. My dogs do not have any fleas. And we don't do anything to treat them for fleas unless we see some fleas on them, which has happened in the past. It has never happened where we live here. This is not because I feed my dogs super special food or my dogs are special dogs or I have anti-flea capabilities in my hands like some kind of God thing. It is because of where we live. We lived in Arkansas. We had no fleas, but we occasionally had ticks. And ticks are a problem and can spread diseases and things like that. So... Some of the things that you can do may work for some people and may not work for others. So the best product I have ever found, and I've used it when I've had bits of product, like the you know picking up a few fleas, um, is a product called Dr. Green Pet, all natural flea control, and it is basically a collection of essential oils. So it's completely safe. It won't hurt your dog. There's really zero risk to it at all. And uh, one of the main essential oils is cedar. In fact, it's cedar, cinnamon, clove, and peppermint. Um, so this will also help you with that stink problem. More on that in a bit. But 
spraying your dog and brushing this in with a good brush uh, will be helpful if your flea problems are minor or if you've eradicated the fleas on the animal and you're more worried about prevention. Uh, this will need to be done several times a week, though. So depending on what kind of hair your dog has, is it a thick, hairy dog or a thin-haired dog, big dog, little dog, all of that plays into how effective this will be and how bad the flea infestation is where you are. The best product for effectiveness, it's not without any risk at all, but I've never actually seen any animal really hurt by it unless somebody was stupid and put it on a cat the wrong way. And Cats have their own thing, and I'm not going to get into that today, but it's basically Frontline. Now, the problem with Frontline is it is, a, it, as far as I'm concerned, a harsh chemical. I actually prefer it to a flea collar because the flea collar is continuous and long-term, where Frontline is a monthly application, meaning that it wanes from the beginning and it's not there. And I've seen flea collars work and not cause a problem. I've seen flea collars just not work, and I've seen some dogs get very uh, irritated necks uh, from flea collars, not because they were too tight. I'm not saying it's never happened. I've never seen a dog that you've used Frontline on uh, have a problem. Now, here's the good news about Frontline. Frontline has come off patent, and even though it's still expensive and it's still marketed under the name Frontline, there's actually many different varieties of it. The one that I've used when I've needed it is called Sentry Fripogard, uh, and I have a link in the show notes to it and the Dr. Green Pet Flea Spray uh, in today's show notes over on Amazon so you can see what they are. But any of the um, generic versions of Frontline will work if you use them as directed and by the right size for your dog. You're not going to have problems. Uh, they're very, very effective. And if I had a dog with a significant flea problem, I would use it before I would let the dog continue to deal with it. Or if I had dogs that were continuously picking up ticks and they can get very serious illnesses from this, I would, I would say the risk of the frontline or generic knockoff of frontline pales in comparison to the risk of uh, major flea infestation or continuous tick bites. So it's not that it's perfectly safe. It's that that's, you know, those goes a long way to uh, when you compare risks, which is worse. And there are certain things that you have a dog that all starts, starts limping. It's a virus they get from ticks. I'm not sure about what it's called. I don't remember. I know what we did have a neighbor that ended up losing a dog and, and didn't even know that's what it was until after the dog had passed away and the vet actually performed an autopsy uh, based on symptoms and suspicion and said it was this particular virus. So ticks actually concern me more. Minor fleas on a dog are not a problem. Fleas to where they're really causing the dog problems, irritation, etc. You wouldn't want insects living on you. Okay. Um, if you're ever going to do a flea dip, I recommend where you're using a rinse that as soon as it's done, the dog is rinsed multiple times. Uh, and I would only do that for um, a, a serious infestation where I've got to get it. I've got to get it under control. Okay. Um, one of the best things you can do for your dog in regard to keeping them healthy and less susceptible to fleas is keep a good oil on their coat. And this is not oil you add. This is their own natural skin oils uh, and keep them good and clean and healthy. Uh, well-fed on high-quality feed, and that will reduce the flea problems as well. And this can go right into your stinkiness, and your stinkiness could be part of the lack of resistance to fleas. He said the dog still stinks when he takes a bath. Dogs don't really take baths. I mean, they play in the water here and there, but 
If you think about a wolf or a coyote that's in good shape, or if you've ever trapped and trapped coyotes or fox that are in good shape with a good quality pelt, they're beautiful and they don't stink other than their piss stinks. Uh, and you might wonder, well, how do they stay so fluffy and nice? Well, it's a big part is their diet and their grooming. And our dogs, our domestic dogs, don't tend to groom as well as their counterparts because, well, they're lazy and domestic. So they're a lot less cat-like. They're not as big on licking and maintaining their fur and things like that. Uh, and they're not eating a 100% carnivore diet, which canines are supposed to eat. So one of the best things you can do for your dog is brushing. And a lot of times, good brushing alone. And I'm saying a dog that smells and has not been on a brushing regimen, I mean like every day for like two months maybe to get the dog into the kind of shape where you're going to have less fleas, you're going to have less shedding, you're going to have less problems. And then we can brush the dog about once a month. And there's a great shedding brush called a Furminator. And that is a great thing to use on like a weekly or, or every other week basis. I'll put a link to where you can find the Furminator. They're expensive, but they're worth it if your dog sheds a lot. But that is not a daily brush. Brush. Um, you want something that's more along the lines of, honest to God, a person, a per, human brush. If you find a brush that has a lot of the wire bristles, but the little rubber knobs on them that you can get in any you know place where they sell human hair brushes, a brush like that. Uh, or any kind of a dog brush that's similar to that. Lots of bristles, fine, and not sharp. You know, like the Furminator Sharp. Those are shedding brushes. You, you're just talking more of something that's comfortable, that's going to feel good on the skin, that massages the skin. And, you know, give the dog a good brushing every day. Every day for a month to two months until he really starts to turn around, and then a couple times a week. And it can be a bonding experience with your dog. Uh, some of the ones that almost look like the Teflon things you put in the oven that have little nubs on them, those are good too. There's mitts that are like that. Uh, whatever works for you. But to me, it's always been, you know, a $3 brush for a person. And you just, you know, mark it, you know, it's for, hang it up, put a thing through the handle and hang it up somewhere, and you know, it's for the dog. And just, you know, when you bring them in from the end of the day, just give them a good brush down. I'm talking just a couple minutes. And that will help straighten their fur out. It will help spread their natural oils out. It will actually encourage them to do a little bit of grooming for themselves. It'll get the sand and the spurs and stuff out of them, and they'll start to smell a lot better. If you use the Dr. Green Pad with those essential oils, it will speed that up, it will help reduce fleas, and it will help reduce odor. And any kind of a, a dog skin conditioner that's made up of good-smelling essential oils like peppermint, cedar, clove, uh, as long as you verify it's safe for your dog, will do the same type of thing. And those are your best bets for these problems. Let's take another one. Yeah, this has been here in Alaska. In response to your May Day show about being an entrepreneur and not celebrating like a communist, I want you to know that on May 1st, I sold 175 seedlings that I started myself, made a nice little chunk of change, sold them all to one supplier, man. It was great. It was cool. Um, I just got to say, man, you know, I stumbled across your show in 2011 after I went up to Fairbanks for the ice carving championship, went to the museum there at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. They had a food exhibit, and they said that uh, 98% of the food consumed in Alaska was imported, yet in the 1970s it was half. Man, 3% of the food grown in this state, or 3% of the food consumed in this state is produced in this state. Man, that's just not right. I started gardening that spring, planting seeds, doing all the things, started looking for podcasts. 
for gardening, and I stumbled across yours in 2011. And, uh, man, everything you say makes sense, man. You do an awesome job, man. Everything's cool. It's been a wealth of information. I stumbled across permaculture because of you, man. I'm a dumbass permie because of you. I got my PDC up uh, a couple years ago up here in Alaska, which is kind of difficult because they don't do them so often. Our population's limited. But, man, here I am. I'm on my journey, man, and you played a, a big role in, in where I'm heading now. And I just want to say thank you very much, sir. You do an awesome job. Well, first, good on you for making use of the communist high holiday with individual capitalism. I think that is like there's always stupid protests and things like that, and people always want to get all upset about it and blog about it or whatever. I think the greatest thing you can do is go out and sell something between uh, to your fellow man with a value for value exchange on that day and kind of point it out to all the uh, the commies out there that that's how things actually get done in the world. Uh, their ideology is flawed because they probably uh, bought plenty of things from capitalists uh, throughout their lives and will continue to do, do so. They live in a make-believe world. Um, that's not a reinforcement of dichotomy. You guys know me. I'm neither Democrat nor Republican, uh, but um, I, I do believe in value-for-value value exchange. On uh, growing your own food in Alaska, I think a lot of people don't know what an amazing opportunity there is in Alaska to, to, to do gardening because... It's such a short growing season. But the reality is, in the Alaskan summer, you guys get as much sunlight uh, during your growing season as I get during mine because you get much longer days. And that's why, you know, people in Alaska are growing like cabbages the size of like freaking beach balls and stuff like that. Uh, so good on you for that. Season extension with greenhouses helps a lot. Uh, with your plant business, that's useful as well. But I think there's a fundamental that people tend to overlook, uh, especially from the outside, with climate types. The more northern climates, where it does become more difficult to do things like grow fruit and nuts and you know long-season vegetables and stuff like that, uh, they offer generally more opportunities for uh, natural food sources. Uh, Alaska, I mean, almost everybody I know in Alaska st spends a good t part of the year uh, catching and putting up salmon. Uh, hunting, uh, you know, wild foraging and things like that. And I think that when you're in more northern climates, you need to think about all of the opportunities that you can avail yourself of, you know, not just a garden. I think that's true everywhere, but the more alpine you get, uh, the more mountainous you get, the more northern you, you tend to get, it, it tends to be that the more you need to rely on proteins uh, and fats from animals. And co coincidentally, the more opportunities there tend to be uh, to acquire them. I mean, you know, you take one moose and you're good on meat for the year um, for a family. So uh, make sure you're taking advantage of that, too. But thank you for calling in and telling me all that and letting me know how you found us and letting me know what you're doing and letting me know that you've like you, you found something. You said, well, that's wrong. And then, so what, what are you going to do? Yell and complain to the government and tell them to fix it? Uh, go to your local extension office and say, you need to make farmers grow more food? No, you're going to turn around and do it yourself. I think it's awesome. I think it kicks ass. I really appreciate you calling in, and I really appreciate you pissing off communists by selling 170 plants on the communist high holiday. And I don't know what you sold them for, but even if it was a buck a piece, it's 175 bucks. Um, a couple bucks a piece, three bucks a piece, you know, you'll get five, six hundred bucks. That's awesome, man. Keep it up, keep up the great work, and keep on producing your own food. No matter where you're at in the world, this guy can do it in Alaska. Wherever you are, you have no excuse. You can do it, too. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, you big jerk. I listened to your show about repairing a tire, 
Then the next day I got a screw in my tire. So because of you, I learned a new skill. My four-year-old helped out. And all because of your show. Thanks a lot. Oh, yeah, that's great. Um, there's a running joke among long-term listeners for that may, those that may not be aware of it. Aware of it. There are certain times that I've been on the air and I'm like, you know, if, if, I recommend that you buy this or I recommend that you do this. And if you ever feel upset that you did, you can call and call me a jerk. So people occasionally call and call me a jerk, usually not because they're upset, but because it actually paid off. Uh, kind of just a little bit of a tongue in cheek humor there. Uh, one of the big ones I've said is if you pay your debt off and, you know, five years from now you're angry because you have no debt, you can call up and tell me I ruined your life by helping you become debt free. And when I talked about learning to plug tires, I was like, um, I, I, their tire plug kits are cheap. It's easy to learn how to do. It can save your ass in so many situations. And if anybody ever feels that I've like damaged your life or ruined your life or hurt your, you financially by recommending that you pick up, you know, a, a seven dollar tire plug kit for all your vehicles and maybe a small compressor so you can get those things repaired and at least get, you know, to some place where you can fully air up if you don't have a really high duty compressor, call in and let me know that I'm a jerk. So I guess, I guess that was some tongue in cheek on that. That's I, lo I love when I hear that and I know it's like, cause sometimes they get on and they're serious, but I love when I could hit, tell right from the beginning, Jack, you big jerk. Uh, call, call, call in and call me a jerk for something like that. Make my day, guys. I, I love it. Um, You know, it is an easy skill, and I do think it is one of the least understood skills, and I think there's things in society that companies have convinced us are dangerous. And it's like moving backwards with technology. So let me explain what I mean by that. In the 1970s and the early 1980s, every single person that I knew that was any sort of mechanically inclined, handyman, do-it-yourselfer at all, knew what a tire plug kit was, knew how to work, and wasn't afraid of it. Like, if they got a nail in their tire, they didn't get a new tire, you know, they just stuck a plug in it, and they went on with their life, and the plug lasted as long as the tire would last. And no one was afraid to use a tire plug. And, and I don't know exactly when it happened, but I remember uh, about, I guess it would have been 94, 394-ish, because it's my little Mustang that I had when I drove down here from Pennsylvania and first came to Texas, and I got a flat, and I was able to put the the uh, the, the spare on, and I got to a Firestone, and I said, uh, you know, it's an old car, they're older tires, I don't know how much longer I'm going to have it, I just need a plug. Oh, we don't do plugs. You don't do plugs? No, they're dangerous. Well, no, they're not. And then we got this argument of whether they're dangerous or not. I'm like, dude, I, you know, my dad ran a tire shop for 20 years. I, we put plugs in hundreds of tires. Well, they're dangerous. Uh, okay, well, we, you know, can you, can you, I'm sitting here like, you know, I need to get this done. Can you, can you patch it? Uh, we don't do patches either. We used to, but we decided they're dangerous too. You, 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 you don't do patches. No. Okay. Well, where are you going? Well, I'm leaving. Well, where are you going? I'm going to Walmart. I'm sure they sell plug kits. And the guy just looks at me, you know. And so I drove to Walmart, picked up a plug kit for a few bucks, plugged a tire, went by a gas station, threw a quarter in the compressor. Back then it was a quarter, now it's like a dollar. Aired the tire up, you know, threw it back on the car. And I've thought over the years, all the times I've dealt with things like tire shops, mechanic shops, People sometimes lying to you outright, sometimes telling you what they believe to be true. They just, the way they've been trained, 
And I think how many people spend how much money that they don't have to spend for stupid shit? You know, I mean, it, it amazes me. Now, if you got something in the sidewall, that's different. But if you have a screw, a nut, a bolt, something like that in your tire, um, plugs are reliable and they work. And it's something every, I mean, it could save you, you know, anything from 20 bucks to 100 bucks. Because there's some tires that will be, oh, yeah, we can't fix it. Uh, you need a new tire. That's what this guy was driving. You need a new tire. You sell me a you know small cars, but you want to sell me like a fifty dollar tire? That four hundred dollar car, you idiot! Love a fifty dollar car, a tire on a hundred dollar car. And he was kind of like you know, really, when we do this, we usually try to replace all four wheels. So he's trying to make a two hundred dollar sale out of a, a, a two dollar plug. You need to learn these skills for yourself, folks. Sometimes you're going to want to go and get a, the new tire or whatever. Sure, whatever. I mean, it's your show truck or whatever. But just to get yourself out of a jam. Learn these basic skills. Anything I talk about, you're not really sure how to do it. I don't explain it well enough. Get on YouTube, and some 15-year-old kid's going to show you how it works. Let's uh, take one more, and we'll wrap up for the day. Hey, Jack. This is Andrew from Texas. Um, just wanted to point out another uh, story of idiocracy and government indoctrination centers. My daughter just did a really awesome science fair project for her sixth grade science fair. Um, she came home and told me that she wanted to, wanted to do um, a project on the effects of different poisons and weed killers. I suggested something else. Maybe do a project on the beneficial effects of uh, mycorrhizal fungi. So I explained the fungi and the way it worked and all that stuff. So she said, yeah, that's a great idea, Dad. She did her project. Um, she did ryegrass, uh, wonderberry, cotton, see, barley, and uh, what else did she do? I think tobacco, although we didn't send tobacco to the, to the school. Um, the effects of the control group and the treatment group were night and day. Um, she made it to finals and actually got beat out by a boy whose mother is a teacher. And his science fair project was the effects of poison, different types of poison on plants. So... My daughter got beat out by a kid who did the project that I talked her out of doing, even though she had a better project. So, yeah, there you go, guys, in TSP land, yet another case of idiocracy. I just wanted to say that I'm proud of my daughter. Uh, thank you, Jack, and thank you, TSP. You guys are awesome. Y'all have a good day. You know, to be fair to the public education system, government education system, the indoctrination centers, which I'm not real hip on, but to be reasonably fair, I, I didn't see the two projects. Um, the girl might have gotten better results, but for all I know, the kid may have done a better job documenting it or, you know, following protocol. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think my bigger takeaway from this is this is why we should stop looking to the indoctrination centers for validation. 
the results of the work speak for itself and they should be more valuable to your daughter than any sort of you know award or ceremony or golden star because i mean you think about it, like if you win a science fair like that like it's a great thing for like 15 minutes and no one really ever gives a damn again you know maybe you get a little ribbon or something you hang up on your wall and you don't really care and your parents care more than you and and this is you know was there nepotism in this probably i don't know I don't know that it's really an idiocracy story. I don't know if it's a, you know, a bias or a nepotism or something because the kid was a teacher's kid or something, or again that it just came out to the point of you know that they decided that maybe he did a better job on the project even though hers might have been more engaging or interesting. So they didn't have a subjective evaluation, rather a um, how well was the scientific method followed, how well was it documented. I, I don't really know. But I, I think what I would be doing is one, be very, very much encouraging your daughter, um, and, and just you know something occurred to me. I know all you did was tell her, hey, but what about this? And she probably did her own work. It may have been such a different, high-level biological thing. They may have questioned whether or not she did the work herself. Who knows? I, I don't. I, I really don't know. Um, but I would, you know, talk to her more about what this means. What does this mean for her long-term future? She now knows how to make plants grow better through biology. Is this something that she finds interesting? Is this something that she sees a future for herself in? Or is it just something that when she's grown up and a mommy of her own and has her backyard garden to feed her family with, that she knows she can grow more nutritional food with? And, and I am so, I am so over public education, government education, that I almost don't care what those people think anymore. And I know if you're a parent with kids, you know, it, it affects their lives. But let me tell you what affects your kid's life from your government school. Their final grade point average and their final grades in their individual courses from ninth through 12th grade. That's what actually affects their future as far as getting into colleges and things like that. And yes, maybe a good resume with some uh, extracurricular activities and stuff like that. Whether they want a science fair or not is not going to be the difference between getting to Princeton or not. Um, if that's you know what your goal happens to be, and it's certainly going to have no effect whatsoever on getting into you know uh, like you if here in Texas, like University of Texas or something like that. Um, or Texas Tech, or you know any of the the, the, the public uh, colleges and universities. So I I really wouldn't worry about it very much, but I would be extremely encouraging of this young lady, and and I would want to say like, well, what do you want to do next? And she might think, well, I lost, so it doesn't matter. Well, first of all, you out of you know probably hundreds of kids made it to finals. So first of all, it's an incredible achievement. Second of all, did you learn something? Did it, did, did it, you know, what you have to be teaching these kids with these things like science fairs and stuff is that, okay, the competition and what all, and the grade and all that subjectivity is fine, but what did you get out of it? Did you just, because what you've got to be teaching kids is like, you don't do stuff like this if somebody gives you a ribbon or a gold star or a pat on the head or tells you you're the best. You do it for the knowledge, the sake of knowledge and learning. And, and, and you know, what does this mean? Because you have the opportunity now to like to switch her mind on. When you, when you realize the magic, 
that simply a fungal inoculation grows stronger, more vibrant, more healthy plants. And you start to understand soil biology. It's a lens into a world that's all but forgotten in modern agriculture. And we're going to need people that know how to do these things at a very high level in the future. Even, you know, the, um, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the USDA, um, is starting to understand the value of true soil care. They really are. Specifically, groups like the NRCS within the USDA are really um, beginning to understand. I, I, I'm telling you that... You know, talking to people like Jeff Lawton, he's having conversations with people in our government where they're acknowledging how bad the problem is with our soil quality. And they're beginning to turn a corner and realize that you can't just keep dumping chemicals on it. It's a very slow process. But for a young person, there's a lot of opportunity in the future. So I would encourage her to go that way. And I'd be less worried about whether or not she got cheated out of a ribbon that won't mean anything next year. Because if you win, a, you do a science project and you win, and that's that's what it, the motivation is. You will be only motivated in the future by winning other things. But if you do a science project and you're motivated by the results, then you're motivated to actually do something for the purpose of expanding your own knowledge capabilities. And entrepreneurs that are successful seldom win science fairs because they're so outside of the box that they're often looked at as being not quite there by people that fail to understand what they're looking at. I can tell you that from personal experience. So thanks for calling in, though, and I'm really encouraged to hear that she did something, you know, counter to, and, and the fact that this kid was a teacher's kid and did this, it almost sounds to me like that was like one of the ideas that were being pushed. And that could have something to do with who won. Like, we're, we're, like this is because a lot of times I've seen with science fairs, like they'll give you like thirty ideas, and and most students will pick one and do it. So there's like a lot of the same thing. Where a lot of times the creative children or children with parents who help them be creative will pick something completely outside the fold. Anyway, just keep developing that lifetime learning in that young person. That's awesome. So with that knocked out, guys, if you like this show and the work that we do here, one of the ways you can help support us is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. Just go to tspaz.com, and you can see our reviews for our Amazon item of the day there. And the other thing that you can do when you're there is you can see the Amazon deals of the day. If you click on any of our Amazon links and go to Amazon and check something out and then just buy whatever you're going to buy, you help support our show no matter what it is. doesn't matter if it's dog diapers. It doesn't matter if it's dog brush. Whatever, just doesn't matter. Uh, by the way, when we did the dog segment, I do have a link in the show notes today. It's a human hairbrush. It's like a $4 hairbrush. It's the exact kind of hairbrush that I meant. So I, I added that kind of after the thought and wanted to mention that that's there too. And you don't need to buy that through Amazon. Just so you know what I'm talking about. The ones with the little nubs on them. Uh, dogs really seem to appreciate being brushed with those. So the Amazon item of the day has nothing to do with dogs, though I sure had opportunities to do that in today's show. Um, it's actually an encore item. It was the first item of the day. It is the, uh, the carry, uh, also known as the uh, shard. So it's the shard or carry, and they're both the same brand. It explains in the review how that works. Uh, smart pressure canner and cooker. Um, this is an electric pressure cooker and canner, and there's a lot of FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt bullshit out there. That there's no such thing as a safe electric canner. 
that's impossible because all of the canned food that you eat every day that you buy in the store is canned, most of it using electric heat. Heat is heat no matter where the heat comes from. Um, that said, this is one of only two that I know of that are warranted by the manufacturer to be safe for pressure canning for low acid foods. And it's the only one I know that will do quart jars. It will allow you to do um, four quarts, six pints, eight jelly jars, or ten half pint jars in one batch. And uh, it's much superior to the one I used to recommend called the Power Pressure Cooker XL. It is excellent for pressure cooking as well. It makes phenomenal bone broth. It, it is fast. You know, 45 minutes to an hour, and you've got bone broth equivalent to what it would take you hours and hours or days and days to make. It really is phenomenal in its ability to make bone broth as well. Uh, it's a great product. And one of the reasons I brought it back is a lot of the products I brought on early on, and I don't know if us featuring them had anything to do with it, but they sold out relatively quick, quickly. And a lot of times when stuff starts to sell out on Amazon, to keep something in inventory so the seller doesn't lose their position, they keep jacking the price up. They don't want the last one to sell until they get more inventory in. It seems like Shard, Carry, depending on what they want to call themselves today, has gotten through this supply chain issue. And they're about 130, 120 bucks. With free shipping on Amazon, they have plenty in stock. So if you wanted one in the past and you know it went up to like 180 bucks and you weren't willing to spend that on it, uh, or they just weren't in stock, now would be the time to get one. It's a good time of year to start using it and learn how to use it so that when the big stuff comes in at the end of the season, you're already ready for canning all of your stuff. And again, yes, this will uh, can low-acid uh, items, uh, whether they're vegetables that you're not pickling or meats or broths and things like that. Uh, it will do that. And one of the biggest things that comes with two petcocks, a petcock is simply the weight that controls the pressure of the steam, and it comes with a heavier petcock that you can put on it so that you people in higher altitudes can use it where the Power Pressure Cooker XL can't be used at higher altitudes because steam and water boil at different temperatures at different altitudes. Well, water boils at different temperatures at different altitudes, and therefore you have to go to higher pressure to get the steam hot enough to do what you're trying to do with pressure canning. Anyway, again... And please don't email me and tell me that you can't use these things for pressure canning because there'd be thousands of dead people all over the place right now because they've been used now for years. And they, again, are warranted by the manufacturer to be safe. And I actually believe, personally, they are safer than old-school pressure canners. They're computer-controlled, and they have uh, a tremendous number of built-in safeties. In fact, it won't even let you screw up um, if you don't initially vent your steam for instance to blow out the the, the first, you know the initial uh, uh air um, it won't start if it's not sealed right it won't start you can't open it when it's hot and still under pressure it won't let you um, it is almost foolproof the big thing with it though is that once you you set it up and you put your stuff in it and you're ready to can it you set your timer and you walk away and you can come back an hour later than it was done, and it just sits there, and you don't have to work because it shuts down. It makes canning a pleasure. It makes canning more pleasurable uh, than it usually is, I'll tell you that. We have a really big, really nice all-American pressure canner. I can't bring myself to get rid of it, but since I got my shard canner, I haven't used it in years. It, it's just that much more convenient uh, to use. So let's get on to the song of the day today. Uh, the song of the day, John Adam picked out for us, and it's by a, a band called Good Charlotte. They're kind of a punk band. I was not familiar with these people. 
Uh, I'm sure I've heard this song at some point in the in the past, but I just don't remember it. But it's called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. And I, it's not my style of music, but I really kind of dig the lyrics. Here's what John Adam has to say for us about this. One thing I love about punk rock is the tell-it-like-it-is attitude. This song points out that the perks of being rich and famous will not bring you happiness. If you don't appreciate your affluent life, you don't deserve it. There are plenty of people who would trade, spot your, trade you spots. The references to Mar Mary, Mayor Marion Barry and O.J. Simpson getting away with crimes seems at first out of context, but when the song was written, Barry had just finished his fourth term as mayor of D.C. and was now on the city council, all of which came after a six-month prison sentence for crack cocaine. The Simpson murder acquittal in 1997 remained fresh in people's mind because the Simpsons couldn't stay out of the press until his in imprisonment in 2008 for other nefarious activities. And indeed, I think that there there is a... Um, There is a reality to this song to me that's more modern day than when the song came out. Uh, and this song kind of, you know, pointed out the inequities between the rich and famous with the rest of us. And, and more specifically, the injustice. In other words, if you were accused of a crime and the same evidence was in place that O.J. Simpson was, You would have went to jail for murder. I would have went to jail for murder. But because O.J. had money, he was treated differently. And as I said in my show on Tuesday, inequity is not the right word right there. O.J. Simpson and I had a definite inequity that I didn't have a problem with. He was one of the greatest football players I ever played, and I could have never played professional football. That's an inequity. And injustice is one under similar circumstances or treated differently. But there's another side to this, and it's more of... Like, I think this song is more relevant today with all this reality TV bullshit like the Cardassians and stuff like this. It's almost like a theme song for these spoiled-ass celebrities whose only real celebrity involves being stupid on camera and having lots of money. And uh, I don't begrudge people being really successful or having lots of money. Uh, I don't even care that stupid people like the Kardashians are stupid. It bothers me more... That it's at, you're at, you can actually be successful being stupid and being idiotic and being a drama queen and all that people actually watch this stuff. And uh, I, I think one of the themes of this song is if, if you ever have to deal with the re real reality of the real world, you ain't going to make it. And uh, I think that you can be very successful and very wealthy and capable of dealing with that. And as you're building wealth in your life, try to be that kind of success. Not this kind of success. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
state your name for the record? Chadwick Merriweather Harding. The third. Can I get back to you with that? Look at the way they dress. They have a horrible fashion sense. Isn't it true that the accused treated you like a dog? Mr. Foreman, has the jury reached a verdict? We have, Your Honor. We find the defendants. <laughs>